feel like I'm confident now in who I am and I'm content with who I am. I'm no different person than I was before I met my mother or my father, but I know all of the pieces to the puzzle and it's just a sense of contentment that just a, a restlessness in my soul that has been calm since I feel like I've got as many of the pieces of the puzzle as I'll have. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and you're about to meet Becky. She called me from Sydney, Ohio. Becky said she has always searched for someone who resembled herself. When she found her birth mother, she was wounded by the woman's fear reaction to having been found after two decades apart. Becky lived with her adoption reunion rejection trauma for years until she found the adoptee community, gained clarity on her birth mother's probable trauma, then finally reached out to give the woman a second chance to release the pressure of her secret. Finding her birth father gave Becky a sense of taking her power back as she figured out her conception story, located the man at a live event, and was welcomed into his heart. This is Becky's journey. Becky was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but has lived in Sydney, Ohio, since she was adopted. Her parents brought her into their family when she was three months old. Becky said they had a typical Midwestern family life where they were close to their extended family and spent a lot of time together. Her father was a teacher and her mother stayed at home with her until Becky reached high school when her mom got a job. Becky said she doesn't remember being told she was adopted, but it wasn't discussed very much either. I never felt comfortable asking a lot of questions. Sometimes I would get up the nerve to ask questions and I could tell, you know, just sometimes you've just got that sense that my mother was not comfortable really answering those questions for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny how you, you have that feeling. Even as a kid, you don't, you don't even know what the word intuition is, but that's what you've got. This intuition that uh, this might not be a good thing for me to ask about. Yeah, absolutely. Just you just knew that it was an uncomfortable topic for my mom, not so much for my dad. I think he was more comfortable with me talking to him about adoption, about my adoption and where I came from. But I learned just to not really talk about it a whole lot. And honestly, it was more of a curiosity until I was when I was eight years old, my adoptive mom was pregnant with my younger sister. And I was at an age where I really recognized, you know, I, I, I saw my mom's stomach grow as, you know, she was, was further and further along in her pregnancy. I felt the baby kick. She went to the hospital. I got to go see the new baby, my little sister in the hospital. And then, you know, she comes home with this baby. And I think I was just at the right age that it really connected with me how much different my coming into the family was than my sister's. And it also made me realize that there was a woman out there that carried me and gave birth to me. And seeing what a significant experience it was for my mother 
my adoptive mother, I knew it had to be for the mother who carried me also. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you make that realization that, oh, you just had that experience with that child, but somebody else had that experience with me, but I'm here with you, you know? Right. Yeah. Really fascinating. So you knew from that early age that you were curious enough to want to search, huh? Absolutely. I think I knew from that point on that there's, I was a searcher, I think from that, really from that period in my life on, I I, I think I was always looking for someone who looked like me. And I knew that I would search. I didn't know how, because it was just always my understanding that, you know, those records are closed and, you know, you are as if born to us and, you know, there's no, no finding out. So, you know, that's the child. That's what I understood as a child. Even, you know, as a young adult, I didn't know I had access to my records, but as an Ohio adoptee who was adopted before January 1st of 1964, I had access to my birth, my original birth record from the time I was 18. I learned that from a newspaper article and I I can still remember, I could hardly afford to take a day off work at that point, but I, I think the very next day after I learned I could get it, I called to find out what I needed to do and I could either wait for them to mail it to me or I could go to Columbus, Ohio to the Department of Health and get it myself. I took the next day off work and I drove over and I got my original birth certificate. Wow, that's amazing. What did you see on that birth certificate? Well, the first thing I saw was, I I think the first thing I noticed that it was that there was, it was blank where the father's name was. And then I saw the name Laura. And at first I thought that was my mother's name, but then it dawned on me, no, that's my name. My mother named me. She gave me a name and it was Laura. And then I saw my mother's name underneath that. I saw, you know, I just, I, kind of took in all of the details. But then the thing that really stood out to me is that my mother was 20 when I was born. And I think I just always had it in my head that she was probably, you know, younger than that, that if she were already an adult, I didn't understand why she would have placed me for adoption instead of raising me. So, you know, that was kind of my first inkling that things were a lot different. I guess I should have known that, but I don't think I'd really thought it through about how unacceptable it was for a single woman in 1962 to keep a baby if she was not married. Becky said before that she was always searching for someone who looked like herself. She further explained that even though her adoptive family is of German and English descent and her biological family is the same, When her extended adoptive family got together, anyone could tell who the blood relatives were and who had married into the family and looked different. Becky said she never looked like the blood family. She looked as if she married into their family with a unique reddish tint to her hair that no one else had. She said that more than physical characteristics, the differences in temperament were more recognizable for her growing up. Becky was someone who was more curious, sought to challenge the status quo, and demanded more explanations, but she felt like her parents were always calm, easygoing, and took things as they were. They accepted the status quo. We talked about how most people who are not connected to adoption think that the physical differences in adopted people and their adoptive families are the source of adoptees feeling different, undervaluing the connection of people's personality traits, 
temperaments, and other characteristics that can be subtle but important differences between people. Personality differences where the adoptee doesn't feel like they are part of the correct tribe can be a big reason why an adopted person may seek adoption reunion. I was curious about how adoption arose in Becky's life in other ways. Becky said the dreaded family tree project came up in school when she was young, but it didn't upset her because she knew what she was expected to do for the assignment and she just kind of did it. But when Becky was a young adult, she was at a gymnastics event for her young daughter, and one of the adult activities at the event was a genealogy exploration. The leader of this genealogy workshop, when I told her I was adopted, what she said was, well, you can't do this family tree then if you don't know who your birth family is because your adoptive family tree is not your tree. And that really made me think a little bit. That made me upset too because I don't believe that one family is better than the other. I think they're all valid and they're just all part of our experience. And I think that was kind of a a touchstone moment for me to really start thinking hard and trying to formulate how adoption really impacted my identity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a point of reflection that someone basically has shown a light on for you that you hadn't really looked in that spot before, right? Right. Yeah, really, right. Really interesting. So could you tell me a little bit more about what that constant searching for someone else that looked like you kind of looked like? How did that unfold for you as you were growing up? That looked like when I left town, we would go somewhere where we would be in people that in a crowd of people or a group of people that I wasn't familiar with. I was just always looking. I was looking for someone with red hair. That's the one detail that my mother remembers the social worker at the adoption agency telling her is that my mother had red hair. And so that's something I was always looking for someone who was younger than my parents who had red hair. And at that point, I couldn't even envision my father in any way, shape, or form. So at that age, my focus was always about my mother. And it also looked like, you know, are there kids who are younger than me that look like me? And when I would see someone that felt familiar, I wanted to to know more about them, if that makes sense. And But there was no way, but I also knew logically that I couldn't walk up to a woman and say, hey, did you have a baby on this date? You know, that that didn't make sense. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I I, I hear a lot of adoptees talk about that sort of searching the crowd, looking for somebody that it feels like maybe that's the one. Maybe that's a connection that I should know. Right. And it's something that... I did in isolation because I certainly wasn't going to talk to my parents about that. And I really didn't have friends who would understand. I had a couple of younger cousins who were adopted as well, but I really didn't have, you know, nobody understood that point of view. They just didn't. Yeah. It's not a shared experience for everybody. And even some adoptees who haven't come face to face with what their adoption means aren't going to be able to empathize with you very well because they're not there yet. Becky had acquired her original birth certificate, or OBC, seen her own name and her birth mother's name, but the space for her birth father had been left blank. She said she realized pretty quickly that the field was likely left blank because her birth parents were unmarried. In her small town library, there was not a lot of information about adoption, but 
the reading materials Becky had encountered clued her into the likely complexity of her conception in the 1960s. She was 19 years old when she received her OBC. They were pre-internet days in small-town Ohio, and Becky had no idea how she would go about finding her birth mother. Becky began grasping at straws on her search. She called libraries in the Cleveland area looking for information for anyone with the same last name as her birth mother. Along her search, someone suggested Becky examine vital statistics records. Over time, as young Becky had the money, she sent in requests to the Office of Vital Statistics to search for the woman's marriage records over a 10-year period, through which she was able to find the woman's married name. Later, Becky got her birth mother's home address at the time, learned about when her next child was born, and got the death information for her maternal grandfather. Becky followed her birth mother's trail over a two-year period and was finally able to get an updated address for the woman who had moved from Cleveland to Columbus, Ohio. After two years of collecting information, it was close to Becky's 22nd birthday when she got that address for her birth mother. I asked Becky, what did she do next? What I didn't do was think through all of the possible reactions she could have. <laughs> the only thing that ran through my mind was she must be waiting for me to contact her. She must want to talk to me as much as I want to talk to her. And I really didn't allow myself the time or the space to consider any other options. One of the things that I had read in one of the books that I did have access to was that it would be wise to have a third party make that call. So I had a very good friend of mine make that call. We rehearsed it. We talked about it. I listened in on the extension. And all I can say is that call did not go well at all. Mm. She had married. She had not told her husband and or her children that she had had a child before they had married. And I don't remember a lot about that conversation, but the words that are burned in my memory are, what is she trying to do, ruin my life? And it was not said that calmly at all. So that's the memory of my mother's voice that I had, that I carried with me for a really long time. And it absolutely crushed me. It was, it was very difficult. My friend did get her to take my phone number her sister, my aunt, called me later that afternoon, and she sent me pictures. She told me about my mother's life and my siblings and you know, gave me a little bit of, you know, of a picture of what my family would, was like. But I think in the end, the only thing she was really trying to do, the reason for her call, was to elicit a promise from me that I would not contact my mother. Uh, so, you know, it was, yeah. So, so what that did then is it gave me a little more taste of what my family was like. And I, you know, I, I honored her wishes for a very, very long time. Mm. I'm sorry. That must have been so, so hard to be lurking in the background and hear her reaction. And hear your friend trying to convince her that you weren't up to anything nefarious, but somehow she just asking, like, is she trying to ruin my life? And the way you said it, it was not said that kindly. Just I could I could hear the frustration in her voice, the, the fear, even just in the fact yeah. that you said she said it much more 
emotionally than what you expressed. I'm really sorry. That must have been so, so hard. It was. And it's, you know, it was such a defining point in my young adult life that even as I talk about it now, I fight back tears. You know, it's been a very, very long time. And it's still, it's just one of those crushing blows that really defines a lot of how you walk about in the world for the next lot of years. And I also did not grow up in a family where, you know, therapy or talking about your feelings and that type of thing was, was the norm. So I did a lot of stuffing it, <laughs> to be honest. Mm. You know, I just, you know, I spent a lot of my adult life and I, and I didn't see, you know, looking back, you see the impact on you a lot more than you do at that moment in time. But, you know, I feel like now at 61 years old, I'm still unpacking a lot of that, a lot of how that impacted me. I can imagine. What did stuffing it look like for you? How did you, do, how did you repress this very emotional rejection that you were firsthand witness to? Well, it looked like keeping busy. It looked like any time the thoughts started coming to me, I looked for something else to do. I would read a book. I would go out and take a walk. I would do something with my daughter. I would, you know, I, it just... I didn't consciously allow it to come to the surface. That didn't mean it didn't because it would be just little different things at different points in time. I remember when my cousin, when I had talked with her and her mother about the reunion that she had with her birth mother, I remember coming home and just crying. I was happy for her, but it also, you know, was just a a stark reminder of what, I didn't think I would ever have. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it just, it was, it was an unhealthy because, you know, I know now that you have to, you know, bring feelings to the surface and work through them to cope with it effectively and healthily. Yeah. That's not what I did. Yeah. You have to face it and repression isn't healthy. Right. How did you finally reach a point of deciding to sort of face what you had, had gone through with her? Really, it was, as I got into my late 40s, I found online communities of people, you know, of adoptees and birth parents. And I found an organization called Adoption Network Cleveland. And I spoke with some of the people that they had, like the search experts and the the support group facilitators. You know, I, I was put in touch with people there. So I it was really being in community with other people who had a similar or shared experience or understood adoption. And that's when I really started working to try to unpack all of that trauma and understand that it was not about me. It was about her. Mm -hmm. And probably one of the most impactful books that I have ever read, and it was recommended to me by the search expert at Adoption Network Cleveland at that time, and that's The Girls Who Went Away by Ann Fessler. And I really understood what my mother was up against. Before reading the enlightening book, The Girls Who Went Away, Becky had not understood anything about her birth mother's story. The non-identifying information Becky requested from the adoption agency had only been two paragraphs of sanitized facts. It contained basic information like, Her birth mother was from a middle-class family, and it was not okay for her to be a single mother. But none of the deeper facts that Becky wanted to know about her birth mother. 
And I think I was harboring anger towards her too. You know, beyond the hurt, there was that anger that I really didn't want to acknowledge. And just understanding that era really helped me to have empathy for the situation that she was in and even empathy for understanding why it was so difficult for her. She'd done what society told her to do. So I think at that point, I started having more of that empathy for her. I understood better that she didn't hate me. That wasn't why that, that wasn't why she had the reaction that she did when I contacted her. It was fear. Right. So at that point, I, and at that point too, I was, I was, you know, in my late forties and I also realized that she wasn't getting any younger and that if I was ever going to have any opportunity, because I'd never let go of really hoping that at some point I would be able to connect with her. And so I tried again. Oh, it took me days to get up the nerve, but believe it or not, she still had the same phone number that she had had. Wow. <laughs> you know, 30 some years before. So, you know, yeah. there, that whole, and I finally, yeah, I, I call it the beginning of my decade of discovery, <laughs> but I, I finally talked with her in 2011 and she first denied who she was. And I started giving her a few facts and acknowledged that she was my mother. And we had a really long and I think healing for both of us conversation. I remember finishing that conversation and sitting and crying, but it was a different kind of crying. It was just kind of a relief because she, she told me a lot of the circumstances. And I, I would imagine it was good for her to get it out because she said she'd never talked about it before. She hadn't talked about her experience with me with anyone. But again, you know, from that conversation, the three things that stick out the most for me is she remembered that she had named me Laura. She told me that she loved me and that she thought about me every day and she prayed for me every day. Wow. And with that, you know, I understood that she was living in as much of a, you know, she had that trauma in her mind as much as I did. I mean, we were both, we were both doing that. And I know she told me she wanted to meet me. She wanted to see me. She asked me to send her pictures via email so they didn't come somewhere that her family would see them. And she didn't rule out meeting, but we had, you know, a little bit of email connection and she actually accepted my Facebook friend request. (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about that, that conversation. It sounded like it really healed you to hear these words from her, to hear her experience. What was that like? It almost felt like a release, like I could let go of those feelings of not being wanted, of not being loved, of not being accepted, of not knowing I had answers for the first time. I had answers from the woman who gave birth to me. I had answers for the first time. And it just, you know, I, it was like a release in my body. It was like this tension that left my body. As I understood, and I think the the most important piece of that for me was just hearing those words that she loved me. And interestingly, just the fact that she remembered what she named me, it made me understand that I was important to her. I wasn't just 
an inconvenience that she discarded. I mean, when you said it, I could feel it. And I wasn't like, it's not even my family. And I could feel, (laughs) you know, both of your relief, both for her, for after 40 plus years, not telling a soul about you and this unbelievable experience of having brought a person into the world whom she never got to know. And now this person is back and looking for her. Like she's living this saga in her life that none of her closest family ever got to understand. And it almost, the image that conjures for me is like a a pressure valve where under enough pressure, it would eventually burst. And I'm sure there were some times when she could probably admit to you that she was emotional about having ever known that you were looking for her and how it came out for her in in weird ways. She may have gone for walks and did something with her daughter and all of this other stuff to try to forget about the fact that you were looking for her. And then there's the pressure that you were under of sort of knowing she's out there, knowing that you know exactly where she is, you've got her number, you've heard her voice, and she doesn't even know you've heard her voice, and yet she doesn't want to talk to you. I I thought of like, when you, you remember when you were a kid on the monkey bars and you would try to hold on for as long as you can and it was just this pressure on your hands and then you finally let go and you were safely on the ground but also your hands felt better like you had released the pressure of like trying to hold on so tight to something that you finally got relief that was kind of the image that came to my mind it was like your your body and soul just got to let go and say I don't have to be angry that I didn't get the reunion that I wanted and and she has kind of admitted what she feels and let me in that must have been such a relief yes and I think the analogy of the monkey bars really is a great description for (laughs) because it's a physical and an emotional release Becky and her birth mother continued to email back and forth Becky Becky sent pictures of herself to her birth mother and the woman promised to reciprocate but she never sent any photos Becky submitted her sample to DNA testing companies Family Tree 23andMe, Ancestry DNA, and MyHeritage in an attempt to find her birth father. In March of 2018, Becky received a message on Ancestry that she was closely matched with someone, but that person could not understand how they were so closely related. I knew from the name, I knew immediately that it was my birth, my sister, my birth mother's youngest daughter. Oh. And... So like, okay, my wheels started spinning because I didn't want to scare her off with a response. I wasn't going to tell her over email that her mother had a child before she married her father. So I, you know, I worked, I actually called my friend and search expert at Adoption Network Cleveland, and we kind of crafted a response together. Well, by the time I got home from work that afternoon, I had a message from my sister that said, Hi, Becky. We came back as a close match. I discovered we're actually sisters and I've read some of your blogs. So I know your background and I can't emphasize how excited I am. So (laughs) there was another release because (laughs) I can remember reading that and I, I read it to my husband and I can remember just standing there with the tears flowing and him holding me because again, it was just this other release of Somebody else knows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Somebody else in my family knows that I exist. And so at that point, she had already, before she had messaged me, she had already went to speak with our mother and she was able to confirm that I was her sister and my mother's oldest daughter. So 
that kind of opened that dam for reunion. That was on in March 15th of 2018. And on March 31st, I drove over and I met my mother and my two sisters and their husbands. And we spent an evening together. So after, you know, from the time I was 22 until I was it took till I was 56. That's, you know, those moments in life that you can just remember every second of what happened. I can remember walking up to the door. I remember her opening the door. I, you know, I could see the nervousness on her face. And I just remember looking into her eyes and we hugged each other. And it, it was just like this, this emotional and physical release that I won't, you know, I will never forget. But that started a reunion that for you know I had always hoped for and I think in a way I always thought might happen but I sure didn't see how for a whole lot of years Mm, mm, mm. gosh the dam just broke right the pressure was being relieved but now it It, just all opened yes that's unbelievable that must have been so amazing to stand there and get that hug and see her face and meet your sisters just all in one fell swoop that must have been incredible it was it was you know it was it's you know the the healing that started when we had that conversation i think having the opportunity to look her in the eyes and see her face to face you know that that was another big piece of that and it's you know it's changed how i feel about myself it's changed who i am between the reunion with her and the reunion with my father it's just it changed it it changed really how i feel about how i walk about in this world if that makes sense tell me more about that what does that mean i I guess what I would say is, is I feel like I'm confident now in who I am and I'm content with who I am. I'm no different person than I was before I met my mother or my father, but I know all of the pieces to the puzzle and it's just a sense of contentment that just a a restlessness in my soul that has been calm since I feel like I've got as many of the pieces of the puzzle as I'll have. Yeah. I'm, I'm, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about how unsettling it can be to, one, not know pieces of your story. Two, to not be accepted when you found the, you know, the holder of those secrets. And then to sort of continue to be, three, a secret yourself is very unsettling in and of itself, right? And I I could see how that does sort of cast a shadow over your existence, one that you could never could have predicted and probably didn't have before all of those things took place, right? Before you tried to search, it was probably right. a small shadow. And then you tried to search and found her and she didn't want to talk to you. And now it's this big, huge shadow. Why doesn't she want to know me? And what does that mean about me? And and what do I not know about what she went through? And absolutely, yeah, I could see how sort of when you get to shine a light and read all of the facts on the paper, right? When the person tells you all the stuff, you then can take it in, deal with it and move forward. Whereas before there was nothing to take in. 
there was nothing to acknowledge. You couldn't process anything because it was all a mystery. Now the mystery is, for lack of a better word, solved. And there's just this clarity that allows you to say, all right, now I get to think about something else, right? Well, and that's a really good point because all of that energy that, you know, that mental energy that was spent wondering and thinking and, you know, the, those contacts with her healed that. Becky said for a long time, she had resigned herself to not knowing her birth father's identity. When she spoke with her birth mother that first time, Becky had asked for the man's name, but the woman declined to tell her. Her birth mother said it was best that Becky not know him. Because their first discussion had gone pretty well, Becky chose not to push the issue of her birth father's identity. Though she did not give Becky his name, her birth mother did give a few clues that Becky held on to from that first conversation. At the time of Becky's conception, her birth mother had been visiting Illinois to see her father's sister, Becky's birth mother's aunt. Since the Ancestry database has rich information about where family members have lived, Becky was able to see where that aunt had lived, researched the county records there, and searched newspaper records for any mentions of that family's name in the county. What ended up breaking it open for me is I found a wedding announcement for a cousin who was the same age as my mother. My mother was a bridesmaid in her wedding, and the timing fit when my mother and the non-ID had said that my parents would have met. So I started researching the men in the bridal party. And the only person that made sense that it could be was the best man. And I found photos of him. He was a pretty public figure in the farming community. So I w- it was easy for me to find pictures. And through the newspaper indexes, I found some pictures of his children. And I could see, I mean, not that we looked a lot alike, but I could see, you know, similarities. So I was pretty sure, I was almost positive that I had found the right person. So what I ended up doing is I found contact information for the bride, who would have been my mother's cousin. And it would have been the day after Thanksgiving in 2012, I called her and had a conversation with her, told her who I was, and she confirmed that the best man in the wedding was my father. Wow. So <laughs> that was, I mean, you know, who would have ever thought <laughs> that I could have figured it out? Yeah. And at that point, I hadn't met my mother. I had spoken with her, but there was such, I think the healing in just figuring out who he was, was it gave me some of my power back, if that makes sense. Mm. I took control of this and I dug in. I used you know, all of my wits about me, the resources I had available to me, and I figured it out. And I I really, when I think about that a lot, I think that that bit of taking my power back, that was so, so incredible for me. And and it was also incredible that within five, 10 minutes after I hung up from the phone talking with my cousin, she had scanned and sent me a photograph of her wedding. So I had pictures of both of my parents about the time they met in a wedding photo, but it wasn't theirs. So that's so uh, crazy. Wow. Yes. So unbelievable. Cause that's that photo is, I don't mean to be crass, but like that photo is pretty close to when you were conceived. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not just this, they were that age and here's one of her over here at the beach and here's one of him like on a tractor in a farm. That's them at the event where they met. That's kind of crazy. 
Yeah, it is. It is. It was absolutely fascinating. Becky was in conversation with someone who knew her birth father, so she was able to get a sense of his personality and how his life was going. When she reached out to contact him, she wasn't going in completely blind as if she had found him through Ancestry and tried to reach out cold. Becky tried to call the man, but he was either hard of hearing or was trying to avoid the conversation, so she didn't get anywhere by phone. In July of that year, there was a farm show happening, and as Becky said, she knew her birth father was prominent in the farming community. Becky and her husband packed their camper, drove over and got a camping spot near the show, then made their way over to the farming event. And we hadn't been on the ground 15 minutes before I spotted him. Wow. Oh, my God. I had, you know, his, his truck had, because I'd seen pictures, because, he, like I said, he was fairly public. And his truck had vanity plates on it that had his initials on it. And you could tell by what he was doing that he was kind of directing you know, movement of a big tractor around the show. So I I figured out pretty quickly that it was him. And we kind of enjoyed the show and kind of kept tabs on where he was at. And there was a point in time when he was alone for a while. And I almost chickened out. My husband ended up looking at me and saying, I didn't come all the way over here for you to be a chicken. (laughs) He said, if you don't go up and tell him who you are, I'm going to do it for you. So that gave me what I needed. And, you know, I just went and I had a conversation with him. We talked about, you know, history and family history. And then I told him that I was over here to learn a little bit more about my family history. And I asked him if my mother's name meant anything to him. And I told him that I understood that I was his daughter. And, you know, I I really tried to go in with neutral expectations. Unlike when I first contacted my mother, I really worked on expectations with, with this and his reaction was totally the opposite of my mother's when I contacted her way back when. And, you know, he was very, he was very accepting and welcoming. He, you know, had a lot of questions, you know, he, you know, and, and we did end up doing DNA to confirm, but I think he instinctually knew I was who I said I was when I spoke with him. And I can remember him after we had that conversation a little bit, he says, well, I think we need to sit down and talk about this some more. So we did. Mm-hmm. And so that, I think where the the contact with my mother was healing, this contact with my father was really about acceptance. And then a lot of identity pieces there too, because I really, in my father and my siblings, that my father raised, my half-siblings, my paternal half-siblings, I found the temperament that I had never been around before. Oh, interesting. Very similar as far as, you know, you know, temperament is very, very much similar. I felt, I felt at home almost instantly, if that makes sense. Yep. I've, I've had a similar feeling, you know, meeting, you know, I love my adoptive family, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And especially in my paternal family, simply because there's more of them that I can feel this connection with them, a similar, like there's a lot of, I have a lot of male cousins and we're, we're kind of similar, like gregarious guys with, you know, big personalities. And I, and so I know what you mean about that feeling at home. And I am glad you got that with your family. That's really amazing. Yes, it is. That's so cool. Wow. 
So where do things stand now with your reunions with your biological mother and your biological father? Uh, so, so after I introduced myself to my father, we were in regular contact. He'd come over and met my family here and visited over here with, with us a couple of times. I made a number of trips over there, had an opportunity to meet three of my four siblings and his wife and aunt and cousins and a number of people a few months after we had first connected. So, you know, we were in almost daily contact until he got sick, but he, just a little over three years after we met, he ended up in, and passed away. I had the opportunity to go and visit with him the day before he passed away. So, you know, I had that opportunity to to say goodbye. Hmm. It didn't seem like nearly long enough, no. <laughs> but <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I, I know how fortunate I am to have had that opportunity. So, and I'm still in contact with my family, my paternal, the, the, my paternal family as well. Yeah. So it, it kind of opened that, that door for me. And then with my mother, I had, so I ended up, I met my sisters at the same day I first met my mother. And then my brother, who was out of town at that time, I had an opportunity to meet him a few weeks later when he brought my mother to my house. And we had a chance to visit there and actually ended up buying lots at a campground that one of my sisters and my brother both had lots mm -hmm. there. So I've had a lot of opportunity over the last five years to get to know them, to spend time with them. My mother would come out occasionally and spend the weekend at my brother's cabin at that campground. So that was just a, a really great and unique opportunity to get to know my family. There was a couple of years ago, they, my sister is also born in July. They had a birthday party out at the campground for both of us. And, you know, that's, you know, if you would have told me at that first rejection from my mother that years and years later, she would be at a birthday party for me and another of her daughters, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> so, like you were um, crazy. Kind of a, right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. So kind of a super surreal experience. <laughs> so I had lots of opportunities to, you know, to spend time and develop relationships and that type of thing. And then, you know, my mother started getting a little bit sicker, had a couple of stays in the hospital. And then last year, 2022 in July, she she passed away. Hmm. So four plus years that that I had an opportunity to spend time with her and get to know her. And interestingly, I had an opportunity to spend time with her the day before she passed away as well. Wow. And, and, you know, here's another one of those things that I think only adoptees really understand is I know because of my, I, I'm pretty sure it's mostly because of my sister's resistance, one of my sister's resistance on the, my, my dad's family that, you know, I wasn't acknowledged in the obituary, even though he was very open about me and would, you know, talked about me to, to everybody he knew. So he didn't hide it at all. But I, you know, I was not listed in that obituary, but I was listed as as Pat's daughter in my mother's obituary. Mm. So that is also something that's incredibly meaningful. The month of July is an important month in Becky's adoption reunion journey. 
she met her birth father at the farm show in July, and her birth mother and birth father both passed away several years apart during that month too. She said there's a lot of synchronicity there that makes her wonder. Becky said she had spoken with her adoptive parents about making contact with her birth mother, but that conversation had not gone well. She shared photographs that her maternal aunt had sent her of her birth mother, Pat, and her other children. I told them about it, and then there really wasn't any conversation after that. So, you know, they knew about that. My, I told my adoptive mom about finding my father, and I showed her pictures, and, you know, we talked about that some. She didn't seem terribly bothered by that, really. So, but, but again, we just, you know, I told her about it. I wasn't hiding it from her but we really didn't have a lot of conversation about it. Now, when I found my mother at that point, my adoptive mother is still alive, but she's, you know, feeling the effects of old age where, you know, she's got, I think, probably some dementia setting in and some physical health issues and that type of thing. So I've chosen not to talk with her about the reunion that I had with my mother and family. So that's just the way. And I, I don't, see that there's anything to be gained because I know she wouldn't, I know it would bother her. And she spends a lot of her time alone. And I think, you know, she'll get set up something in her head that she'll worry about and she'll keep thinking about it over and over again. And so I don't, I don't want to do that to her. I agree. Yeah. It doesn't serve any purpose at this late stage in life. And with what seems to be deteriorating mental capacity, you're absolutely right. The the few conversations that you'll get that will be lucid and meaningful should be things that you really want to talk about between the two of you. And it doesn't have to be this. There's just you're right. not getting anything from it. So why trouble her with it? I hear you 100 percent. Wow. Woo, Becky, what a journey. My goodness. <laughs> I'm so glad, though, that your mom came around. I mean, I, I just keep going back to how much pressure she must have felt when she found out that you were looking for her. I'm sure it was lingering in the background for years and years after your birth, but then for that that moment to come for your friend to make that call on your behalf, I'm sure she was just just terrified of what would unfold if her secret was revealed. And I know it took many, many, many years for you guys to actually get into a place of being in reunion, but I'm so glad that it actually happened. I am too. And you know, you think about when you no longer have the ability to ask somebody questions, you think about the things that you wish you would have asked. And that's one of the questions that I'm curious about is once I made that contact, once she knew that I knew who she was and how to get in touch with her, I wonder how much she worried about me appearing at her doorstep one day or something like that. But I, I just never, that's not a conversation that we had. But I do know that my siblings had no idea. My sister, who our DNA match is the one that got us in touch, she said that she had searched it over in her head over and over and over again, and there's just nothing. And then after our mother passed away, she had said as she went through her things, she had kind of wondered if she would find any type of evidence that I had existed <laughs> in any of any of our mother's stuff. And there was nothing there wow. that she found anyhow. She kept that secret super close and tight. Wow. 
He did. No. Well, Becky. Until you, DNA. <laughs> I know. Until DNA. It's it's crazy how that works out. Well, thank you so much for being here with me, Becky. I really appreciate your openness and sharing your story. And I certainly hope that hearing your journey is going to help somebody else. So I appreciate you taking well, thank time. thank you. Of course. My pleasure. All the best to you, okay? All right. Thank you. Take, Take care. care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey, it's me. Becky grew up always searching the crowd for faces that might look like her own. But more important than physical similarities, Becky was looking for common personality traits with her tribe. When her search to find her birth mother got her on the phone as a third party listening to her birth mother's voice, she left the call wounded for years over the woman's fear of being found. When Becky found the adoption community, she gained a new perspective on her birth mother's lifelong trauma post-adoption relinquishment. It took decades for Becky to call her birth mother, but when she finally did, both women were released from decades of built-up pressure. Becky was fortunate to have three great years of reunion with her birth father, a man who welcomed him into her heart while his family left her off of his obituary. Fortunately, Pat's family included Becky's name on her obituary, which may seem like a small thing to other people, but for an adopted person, that documented acknowledgement of our existence can mean so much. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Becky's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? Really?